Hi, and welcome to Edge with Dr. Stephen Brown. This podcast series focuses on the story, the personal narrative of Australians who have pushed at the edge. They have been pioneers who are doing amazing things that are a little bit different to the everyday. Sometimes their stories are told and well celebrated, and sometimes these stories are reasonably well hidden. Dr. Stephen Brown is a highly regarded leader in the education sector, both in Australia and internationally. He is the managing director of the Brown Collective and has a strong interest in people and getting to know their stories. He has developed this podcast series to introduce you to some of Australia's finest citizens. It's my great pleasure to introduce Dashak Mitra, OAM. Dashak, what a uh, chance meeting I had on a flight from Sydney to Brisbane one late evening. I sat down beside Dashak's, uh, I didn't know, but Dashak's uh, wife and uh, we got talking. And what a lovely, warm person she is. And she then subsequently connected me to a husband who was sitting across the way and we got to speaking about the wonderful, wonderful things that he's involved in. Dashak Mitra OAM uh, is uh, the patron of the Ian and Greg Chapel Foundation. A foundation does some extraordinary work uh, right across the nation and connects up through cricket many well-known personalities and also um, raises money for quite a significant range of causes. Dashak Mitra, OAM, welcome to EDGE. Thank you, Stephen. The honour is all mine. Dasha, take us back to the young Dasha growing up overseas. Tell us a little bit about your story. Um, look, I was born in Bombay, and uh, I've always sort of believed that if you've chosen your parents well, you have a duty to the world, and that is leave it as a better place uh, than you inherited it. And always uh, remember, never forget that uh, we are all trustees for the coming generation or the coming generations. So, you know, it's a little bit like, uh, even though this sounds very pretentious, it's a little bit like the French saying of noblesse oblige that. Uh, uh, if you can, you must devote uh, at least a part of your life to helping people who are not as fortunate as you are. So I think that probably encapsulates my motivations. So this whole sense of stewardship, which is about leaving a world in a better place, I mean, we talk to leaders and quite strikingly, but not unfamiliar, is this sense of family values instructing and informing um, the next generation. So your parents, obviously, um, what did they do and what did they um, instruct you or support you in forming you in uh, those years in Bombay? Father was, uh, Stephen, uh, largely a self-made man who only could uh, get halfway through university before he started off in business with his brothers in the copper wire manufacturing area. And my mother uh, did her 
matriculation. So they weren't highly educated, but they knew that they wanted their children to get what they couldn't. And they were small town folks. My mother was married off at 18 and I came along at 19. So, you know, she never went to university, but there was no one keener than her to educate uh, me and ensure that, you know, I understood that education was the panacea. And uh, so much so that uh, in those times, it was a bit unusual to educate, to send your child to a a missionary school as I did. But uh, she knew that, you know, I had to be uh, educated in English and uh, I had to be a part of the modern world, a world of the cities rather than the towns and the villages where she came from. I was literally told I had no future without that. And uh, basically, I understood that that was very important to my parents at a very young age. Well, that's certainly a theme that's um, taken through your extraordinary, uh, wonderful life, uh, giving for others, uh, the importance of education, uh, values, um, and immersed with that wonderful pursuit that we share, which is cricket. So uh, we'll explore those things in a moment. But the young Dasha, um, in growing up in Bombay, and then in 1988 you left uh, the wonderful country of India, and uh, we're most grateful that you came to Australia. Can you tell us about the motivations and why? Well, a lot of my Australian friends wish I hadn't. <laughs> uh, look, uh, I've always had some kind of fixation, some obsession, some fascination with Australia. And it probably must be to do with its cricket. In uh, 1969, I think uh, it was when uh, Bill Laurie came to India with uh, his team. And uh, I was there at the Cricket Club of India, my home ground, the Brabourne Stadium. To watch the test match there and uh, there were even riots on the fourth or the fifth day when Australia threatened to win the game which they eventually did. So that is my first recollection of Australia and Australians at age 12 and uh, you know subsequently in 1979-80 I played against a visiting Australian uh, social team it was called the Grey Kangaroos and I struck up <laughs> Uh, uh, many, many uh, friendships which which uh, have uh, uh, lasted through these uh, 42 years, 41 years. And uh, I've always loved Australia for being, you know, the sort of open, uncomplicated golden land it is. And Australians who are extremely direct, very humorous, and who... Uh, to take, uh, uh, how, how would I say it delicately? Well, I won't. Who love taking the piss out of anybody pompous. So, <laughs> so you know, <laughs> I've always uh, uh, liked that. And uh, it was Australia that I toured in 1981 with my uh, Cricket Club of India team. And then again in 1986. And uh, that did nothing to quell my enthusiasm. And in between, I came to Australia on a private holiday as well in 1982-3. So prior to coming here in 1988 for good, 
you know, I did have tasty morsels of what Australia was like. And I thought I understood the country and the people and uh, have absolutely no regrets. Uh, I, I just uh, wanted to live here. And, you know, after a certain while, Stephen, it just gets a bit stifling because in Indian society, you are expected to be highly conformist. You are expected to look after, say, if you are from a business background, you expect to inherit the business. So you're always sort of spending half your life being somebody else's son. And I'd rather spend the other half of my life being known as somebody's father. So I, I wanted to be my own man. And uh, I thought I brought a great opportunity and uh, uh, to build a business, to start it in a totally, what was a totally sort of strange business environment for me. So I thought I'd give it a shot when I came here in 1988. And uh, I started Sanalco Pacific, which was a cable recycling business uh, where we sort of chopped up electrical cable and extracted the copper, which I would uh, sell to the likes of Mount Isa and uh, CRA and sell the copper to the likes of uh, BTR Nilex. So it was a little bit like the business that I had back home, but uh, this was secondary copper related, not primary copper. So I uh, started off with a unique uh, Danish-built cable recycling plant, which was the most modern of its kind in the world at that stage, because it was the latest plant. And, uh, you know, I had some great times, uh, you know, starting it off and working in a very different environment to the 12 years that I spent working in India in my father's family-run business. So... You've come to Australia and um, obviously your awareness of Australian attitudes, it's our directness, our light-heartedness, our ability to laugh at each other. You're uh, one uh, wonderful individual who's contributed. Donald Horn wrote this funny, wonderful, iconic book called The Lucky Country. Do you still think it is the lucky country, Dasha? Yes, look, Stephen, I, I do think most Australians don't realize how lucky. In fact, uh, I am quite prescriptive. I tell people that every young person over the age of 15 should have a compulsory apprenticeship in, you know, poorer countries, uh, particularly in Asia, which will not just aid our understanding of other countries and other cultures and possibly languages, but also make uh, young people really appreciate what we here in Australia have and uh, what we tend to take for granted, you know, our affluence, uh, the clean air, the clean water, the lack of traffic. I mean, we talk about our, our cities being polluted and, you know, the traffic, but I, I would say it's a first world problem, not a third world problem in all of those things. So, I'm not sure whether I'm answering your question, but I, I do I do feel that it is an extremely lucky country and that we have taken 
our luck for granted and uh, we need to work harder at it uh, with our education with awareness and to protect our pristine environment more uh, than anything else that's a good place to draw together these wonderful parts of your life from education the importance of giving contributing broader than self. You started to uh, and initiated two wonderful uh, contributions in terms of foundations and bringing together this cricket in the first case, I mean, the second case as well, I guess. Um, the wonderful, uh, not too many people in Australia who love a sport and cricket who don't know uh, Ian, Greg and the Chapel Brothers and all of that. And bringing together the lucky country notion, its real focus, as I understand, is youth homelessness is, is the basis uh, for the foundation. We'll go on and have a look at the other contributions subsequently, but tell us a little bit about the Ian and Greg Chapel Foundation, Darshan. Well, if I could, Stephen, just for the sake of chronological order and how I got to the Chapel Foundation, if I could just take the liberty of telling you a little bit about how this all sort of evolved. I was ensnared into a organization called the Association for India's Development, AID, AID. And it was run by some really idealistic, starry-eyed, second-generation Australians of Indian origin uh, here in Sydney. And uh, the purpose was you know, to help people in, in India. So I, I got involved because uh, it meant helping, you know, people in, in really, really poor and very adverse uh, circumstances in the tribal belts of India, etc. So that was my initiation to a small volunteer-run charity run out of Australia. And then a few years, maybe two or three years uh, later, I had a call from Peter Roebuck, the great cricket writer uh, who I knew. And uh, Peter wanted me to come to his Bondi home to discuss an idea that he had. And uh, I was intrigued and uh, went along and uh, was soon. Uh, talking to about 15 other like-minded people. And Peter was telling us how he supported uh, education in many underdeveloped countries of the world, in Africa, uh, in Zimbabwe in particular, in South Africa, in India, in Pakistan, etc. And I made the mistake of opening my mouth and uh, telling him, well, why don't why don't you formalize this? And he said, what do you mean? I said, instead of supporting it, you know, yourself, uh, that's very limited. If you formed a charity or a foundation, you know, we could do this in a much larger and much more organized way. So, you know, you must, uh, you know, do that. And uh, he thought that was a great idea. So, look, uh, I think I regretted it uh, at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Because before I knew it, there were actually people from from a couple of the 
large Sydney law firms, accounting firms. Peter seemed to know many, many people, you know, and he was uh, uh, the sports master at Cranbrook. So a lot of Sydney society people, Peter did know because their kids were being educated at Cranbrook. So, you know, we uh, had a follow-up meeting to that and uh, there were folks who were promising to set up the foundation or to do the accounting and uh, the audit free of cost or act as advisors, etc., etc. And hey, presto, within a month or two of that conversation, a charity was formed. It was, um, and, you know, we had two journalists, not just uh, Peter Roebuck, but there was also the doyen of Australian journalist, Mike Coward, who was involved. So the first thing we did is we, we had this meeting at my place and we thought, what are we going to call this? And uh, uh, with a cricketing niche in mind, we said, LBW seems like a great idea. And they expanded. Uh, the LBW was not leg before wicket, but learning for a better world. So we called it the LBW Trust, the Learning for a Better World Trust. And our objective was quite simple, that we would help tertiary educate young men and young women in developing or underdeveloped countries of the cricket world. And uh, it was quite broad that cricket world wouldn't consist of just the eight ICC test playing countries. But, you know, there were there are about 100 odd members of the ICC. So it could be anywhere uh, within those 100 countries so long as uh, the fig leaf of cricket was around. So we uh, sort of uh, really rolled our sleeves up decided that it would be as far as possible volunteer run. And uh, there were four of us uh, who were the initial directors. Uh, that was uh, Peter Roebuck, Mike Coward, solicitor called Peter Strain, and myself who co-founded the LBW Trust. And, uh, you know, I was elected chairman because nobody else uh, basically wanted to be <laughs> I'm sure and, that is not the case. <laughs> and uh, my business background uh, of the past was uh, supposedly what uh, they were looking in in the chairman's uh, job at that time. So in 2006, the LBW Trust was actually formed. And uh, to this day, Stephen, um, it is going and I'm I'm delighted that it is because we are helping about 2,000 young men and women in a fairly diverse range of countries of the world, uh, in India, in Pakistan, in Sri Lanka, in Nepal, in South Africa, in Zimbabwe, in Jamaica. And these are youth who we like to think that would not have the opportunity to pursue tertiary education uh, after having finished their primary and secondary, they may not have the money or they may not have had the money 
to pursue tertiary education and it was our objective to help you know help these young men and women lift themselves up by their bootstraps by facilitating their education and the way we did it is that we aligned or we partnered with like minded charities in all of these countries that we are uh, supporting these uh, youth in and uh, they tend to look after uh, the fees and the progress of these young men and women who are offered tertiary education scholarships so quite simple the beneficiaries are all in cricket playing countries uh, developing poorer cricket playing countries of the world uh, they are all sort of youth so they are all either getting tertiary educated or university educated or you know trained for jobs and uh, the money is getting raised in australia using the niche of cricket and uh the cricket community uh doing its bit uh to help other countries with education and uh, hopefully you know lifting uh, thousands of youth out of poverty and uh, to an extent i dare say we have been successful in fact we've had some amazing success stories uh, with the lbw trust so that's how lbw got started and maintained and uh, you know it's uh, thriving still i am no longer associated i was the uh, chairman of that foundation of the lbw trust for about 10 years and uh, you know i still maintain a very keen interest but from afar i'm only you know these days uh, a patron of the lbw trust and then a couple of years after that uh, you know after i uh, passed on the poison chalice to my friend david go who took over <laughs> as chairman uh, i felt uh, along with greg chapel who i sort of persuaded that uh, you know perhaps the chapel family might uh, want to uh, uh, think about setting up a charity year for australia and australians and uh, greg and i had uh, greg chapel and i had a quite a few disagreements about what such a charity who it would be there to assist but we both agreed that you know youth homelessness in australia was an issue that really needed to be addressed and uh, we thought uh, that should be our focus if we started off so that's how the chapel foundation got started uh, our objective was to help the 40000 odd young men and young women in australia who were tragically uh, experiencing youth homelessness in our very affluent country both of us thought it was totally unacceptable that uh, there should be you know the levels of 
despair that there were with uh, young people unable to or or uh, you know due to circumstances um, not living in a home and living on the streets in australia so the chapel foundation also had a had a, a focus of uh, youth and and greg greg chapel has always been a great champion of youth so i suppose it is uh, appropriate you know that we are helping youth in australia wow what an extraordinary contribution through to um fabulous uh, foundation and the foundation of trust pardon the metaphor but the hard wiring of cricket to australia india in part of our cultural uh, fabric and uh, the broader contribution uh, to society um, we mentioned the lucky country and you talked about that uh, the sense of youth homelessness uh, in this really great country is uh, disturbing and uh, from your observation is there one thing or just a multiple faceted aspects of this issue well look uh, to <laughs> dwell on the obvious you know youth homelessness could be tackled we have we always seem to find money to fight wars in foreign countries and spill australian blood in foreign countries in distant lands which have very little connection with us just because our great ally the united states is uh, decided to fight a war there and we have wasted billions of uh, dollars so the money is there if that was uh if that is an excuse if that was required uh, i mean you know for social housing to be constructed and uh, that is the main thing the resolve doesn't seem to be there in our decision makers in our polity that uh, there will always be you know maybe 5% of our population who may need to be looked after uh, who may uh, you know not be who, who may be left behind and uh, with our social uh, security net uh, you know these are the people who have actually slipped and uh, one of the reasons that has occurred is that uh, you know there is just not enough affordable housing and uh, governments of all stripes have uh, basically been derelict uh, and we need to have enough housing stock particularly social housing stock so that is the one one glaring thing that we are lacking but also the one thing that we could do to assist so uh, obviously you um are shining a light and leading the way and doing your bit with Greg and Ian Chapel and uh, we thank you uh, on behalf of so many people you are a leader a uh, absolute extraordinary leader business leader community leader somebody who invokes the edge concept of this podcast and working with a whole range of leaders and being that leader yourself in many ways what are those things you think 
every leader needs to really think about this or have these things or capabilities or dispositions? Would those things be? Well, Stephen, uh, I would dispute whether I'm a leader or, but but you know, to be quite honest, uh, we all have this responsibility towards people that are not as fortunate as us. I think that kind of empathy whether you are you know leading an organization or just a part of society and australians tend to have that uh, it's not like it's not existing uh, in fact uh, there are 55000 charities so obviously uh, that's probably 54500 more than there should be but uh, you know there are idealistic people in australia who want to do their bit for others, you know, and uh, we are very good at volunteering and we are quite community-minded and uh, teamwork-oriented. But I think we need to all sort of have the the attitude that... Uh, I, which I which I greatly see in America, in particular, you know, in their organizations, in their philanthropic organizations, uh, their charities, they really give a lot of money, and uh, they have these private foundations which are fabulously, fabulously rich, and uh, these endowments and all, and uh, our wealthy don't seem to be doing as much. I mean, you know, getting our, our extremely rich to pay taxes is hard enough. And once they've paid that, a lot of them seem to think that uh, all these other societal issues are the government's problem to solve. And they're not. They affect each and every one of us. I mean, to give you an example, youth homelessness, if in despair leads people to break into people's homes, indulge in petty crime or serious crime, and then they get locked up, are we quite happy to spend $125,000 a year in maintaining people in jails, you know, and for sure turning them into hardened criminals? Or should we be spending that money in prevention, uh, giving them, you know, say, an opportunity to live with dignity in their own homes and uh, providing them with uh, at least a subsistence sort of uh, uh, funds to eat? So I think. We are doing uh, a lot, but we need to do a hell lot more to ensure that these societal problems are not enlarged over time. Uh, and in in the sort of sphere that we are concentrating currently on, which is uh, youth homelessness, you know, to have forty four thousand young people 
up to the age of 25 on the streets or not having permanent homes is just absolutely awful. It's unacceptable for an affluent country. And, uh, uh, you know, along with many others, we are trying to do our best, but it's, I must say, Stephen, at times it's quite overwhelming. And the sort of stories we we uh, sort of hear from these young people about the causes of their youth homelessness. I mean, you know, they're all, they're not numbers, they're all individuals. And they could all be very worthwhile, contributory uh, people in our society. And uh, we need to give them that opportunity. Dasha Migda, OIM. My absolute pleasure and a very humble for the opportunity to listen to you, to converse with somebody who's made an extraordinary contribution. What some people might say, well, as you are courageous, maybe some of these issues are intractable. But I have to say I'm very encouraged and confident with people like you supporting our wonderful people in this country We've got the human condition of hope. And I thank you, Dasha, for uh, what you've done. Just amazing. So thank you for being a guest on Edge. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, thank you for uh, the opportunity to amplify uh, the modest work that uh, we are doing. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I'm i sorry it's been a little bit of a monologue. Uh, I didn't uh, find that at all. I just found it extremely uh, engaging. And so thank you. And I'm sure uh, so many will continue to wonder and just applaud you. And from one of your cheers, Scott, cheers. Thank you, Dash. Thanks, Stephen. Great pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. You can follow Dr. Stephen Brown on LinkedIn and Twitter on at Dr. Stephen Brown One. Please join us next time for another episode of EDGE.